Welcome to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. You deserve complete financial advice. There's no acceptable alternative if you want to plan to live well and on your terms. Complete financial advice equals complete peace of mind. Now, let's get into this week's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to Retire Right with Larry Heller from Heller Wealth Management. Good afternoon, Larry. How are you? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm, I'm really interested in the guest you brought on today, and, and you've given me the privilege of introducing him. Can I do that now? Absolutely. All right. Well, you brought on Glenn J. Franklin, and Glenn is the managing partner of Franklin, Gringer, and Cohen, PC, and has been representing employers in their labor and employment law matters for his entire professional career. Glenn has had extensive experience in collective bargaining, having successfully negotiated hundreds of contracts on behalf of management with various unions throughout the country. The secrets to Glenn's success as a negotiator are his perseverance, communication skills, and the credibility that he has established with his counterparts across the negotiating table. As the managing partner of Franklin, Gringer, and Cohen, PC, Glenn's philosophy has been to develop strategies for avoiding litigation and exceeding the client's expectations when litigation is unavoidable. Larry, he sounds like somebody I don't want to get in an argument with. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, he, he, he's very tame very tame eric <laughs> okay I, 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 thank you i appreciate that it makes me feel better <laughs> so why'd you bring I, I'm him going up in law that may be another that may be another <laughs> difference but so thank you eric so in times with COVID 19 now and what's going on employment and labor law glenn i think you're a little busy right now so i appreciate you taking the time out to uh, to joining us today and our listening audience so uh so why don't we kind of jump right jump right into it and you know there are a lot of unfortunately with what's going on in the world a lot of people are having some difficult times as far as employment and there are a couple of different buzzwords and i'm not even really familiar what the differences are but so why don't we kind of start in this if you are laid off versus if you are furloughed, I guess a lot of people originally were furloughed and now some you're hearing more and more of those furloughed people being laid off. So can you explain the differences to us? Uh, sure, Larry, and thank you for the opportunity to be here and, and Eric as well. The difference really between a layoff and a furlough is uh, is interesting. The government, when they got involved with it, the layoff and furlough, I've been around uh, for a long time, uh, really was the same thing. But a layoff is someone who is uh, who no longer is working based upon a lack of work. Uh, it's a similar thing for a furlough, but the aspect of a furlough is that they were allowing people to continue to have their medical coverage. So for all intents and purposes, these people were both not working at their regular uh, jobs. They were eligible for unemployment insurance, but the furlough was that they were getting medical insurance uh, as opposed to uh, just uh, uh, not working at all and not getting the the, uh, the medical insurance. That's really... The, uh, this this distinction that's the, and that's really the only distinction between that correct yeah that's really true at, at this point mm -hmm. yes and, and then so what is the difference then if you have gone from a layoff furlough and now terminated okay and this is where you know we'll spend a little bit of time because uh, my phone is ringing off the hook representing employers and some employees as well but the reality is if someone is laid off or furloughed if they were good enough to still be there prior to the pandemic, 
whether they were, they were a D-plus or a C-minus employee, they still would have the legal opportunity and requirement to be brought back to their same position at the same pay or equivalent position, although I've been quoted in the papers as saying to me that, you know, there's no such thing as equivalent position. So, you know, we, we're telling our clients that those people have to come back. And it's not a matter of, oh, uh, Mary Smith was such a terrible employee, or et cetera, et cetera. But if she was working for you for eight months or eight years, she was good enough to, to do that, and, and uh, you know, she would have the opportunity to, to come back. Termination is based upon conduct, misconduct, et cetera. And we, re we tell our clients, listen, people, would, what do they say in real estate? Location, location, location. In my business, it's documentation, documentation, documentation. People need to have, employers need to have the appropriate documentation to discipline people and ultimately furlough, uh, I'm sorry, ultimately, not furlough, but ultimately terminate the, the person. And, you know, that's what we're talking about, strategies to avoid litigation. Look, nobody can, nobody can avoid being uh, sued, right? I have doing a seminar down the road, every employee can sue you. So that's true. But an employer should put itself in the best defensive posture by having the appropriate strategy, whether it's you know the, pro the appropriate documentation, the appropriate recommendations as far as counsel is concerned, those kind of things that, that need to be done. So that really is what is driving our, our um, out that has been really driving our practice and how the phone is ringing off the hook with people saying, I no longer want to bring Mary Smith back or John Jones, or how do now I get rid of this person, or what do I do, or I have to get rid of two people based upon a layoff or a furlough, we don't have to work anymore, what do I have to do? So those are the kind of things, Larry, uh, that we're really uh, dealing with on a daily basis. So so it's, it's really a difference if the firm doesn't have the revenue to pay these employees anymore, just trying, they obviously can terminate them, but they, you're saying that they should have some documentation uh, to really back that, back that up. Well, a layoff is, a layoff is for lack of work. So when somebody don't have the revenue, at that point that person is laid off. If they're not performing, they have attendance issues, they have something else, you know, I talked about documentation. If you catch someone uh, stealing from you on video, you don't have to use progressive discipline or documentation at that person, that point that person is terminated based upon their performance or based upon their misconduct. When someone is laid off or it's based upon the, whether they were a great employee or a, uh, just an adequate employee, that continues to, to happen. And the issue is when, when they lose their revenue, Larry, the question is, you know, we try to try to tell people they have to be have objective reasons. So, example, Let's assume there are two administrative people. They're both doing data entry. You have Mary Smith, infamous Mary Smith, and Jane Jones. So Mary Smith is there eight years. Jane Jones is there, there two years. They do the identical job. Even if, though, Jane Jones, in the eyes of the employer, might be a much better employee because Mary Smith is still working. She was good enough to still be there, and they now have to lay off some of the, one of the people they should lay off the two-year employee as opposed to the eight-year employee. So if somebody files a claim before the New York State Division of Human Rights, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the federal, the Nassau County, Suffolk County Commission of Human Rights, or if in the city, the New York City Commission of Human Rights, 
they at least can have a legitimate business reason and say, look, we went strictly by length of service, by, by seniority. That's why we did what we did. And what we did, and, and so that is, uh, you know, what the circumstances are. If Mary Smith is not doing a good job, then ultimately they, they should be writing written warning letters, and there's specific things that should include in a warning letter. Purpose of a warning letter, Larry, is to correct an employee's performance, not to blow them out of the water, is to make them a, a model employee or a very good employee. If they can't perform that particular task, then, then that's when you let the person go. So it's really, that's the, you know, the issue when you're talking about preventing discrimination claims. That's really what, or at least putting someone in the best defensive posture in dealing with the discrimination claim. So you don't really have to bring back a subpar employee. What you're saying is you just better document and better have given written uh, documentation to these to this subpar employee along the way. Well, I would still say I I have to you know different just so I, I make sure I explain it properly. You would bring a subpar employee back because they were good enough to still be there. The point is is when they return if they're not performing properly, that's when you bring them back. Now there are exceptions to the rule. I'll give you a, a perfect example. We had one with with you know the eight year and two year employee. Here's one actual one I represent uh, car dealers. So when there was an issue about a car dealer bringing back salespeople, the, what they had is objective proof. So what they had somebody that they had two slots. And they had four people. Well, they took the two most successful people. If, you know, one person sold 16 cars a month, the other person sold 15 cars, and the other people who might have been there longer sold five cars and four cars, even though that's one way to go avoid the subpar performance. They took that because, again, you're dealing with something objective rather than subjective. Hmm. So how does an employee prevent a discrimination claim? Well, nobody, as I said, nobody can prevent, anybody can make a claim. Uh, listen, the New York State Division of Human Rights, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the other city, you know, city and local agencies are great agencies for people who've actually been discriminated against. Unfortunately, what happens is that some people, not the majority of people, but some people, rather than use it as a you know, shield against real discrimination, I'm talking about employees, they use it as a sword and say, hey, I don't need a lawyer. I don't need anything else. I'm going to file a discrimination claim at the agency and let's see what happens. I'm going to use it maybe to get some severance pay out of the deal. So what happens is, again, that the employee should, I'm sorry, the employer should have assumed that every employee is a potential litigant and so that you know, employers should have policies in place for documentation or things of that nature. Give you know, and they have to be consistent. So if I can take another few seconds to explain one. Let's assume, uh, Larry, you have an employee who's absent 30 times, late 30 times, and left early 30 times. He decides to hire me. You say, me, man, Glenn Franklin should even be able to win that case. And let's say that employee is 30 years of old, or 30s. Okay. However, there's another. Em, uh, employee, uh, I'm sorry, let's assume that employee is, is not 30. 40 is a magic number. Let's assume they're out 30 times and they're over 40. Let's say they're 50 years of age. But if you have another employee who's 35 years old and they're absent 35 times, late 35 times, and left early 35 times, person who's out 30 times who's over 40, 50 years of age is going to say, hey, I'm not the worst offender. 
You have, you know, John Jones. I, yes, I was out 30 times. John Jones is out, was absent 35 times and left early 35 times. And he's under 40 and I'm over 40. I Now I'm going to file an age discrimination case. So people just have to be consistent in how they deal with their employees. A lot of it is the golden rule is that, you know, you should treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And that's how I know you well. And that's how you treat your both your employees and your clients, and we try to do the same thing. But consistency and documentation put people in the best defensive posture to automatically say there's not going to be a complaint is, uh, is not something that's realistic. Hmm. Uh, Glenn, are you seeing a lot of, a lot more age d- discrimination suits now? Are the courts open now to, to, to see these going on? Well, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the, the federal courts are open. But the agencies are, are open as well. So people can file complaints online. You know, things that are protected are age. I'm going to get all of them, but as an example, age, race, uh, religion, national origin, uh, disability, handicap, uh, sex, sexual uh, orientation, uh, genetic predisposition, on and on and on. So we're seeing more of these cases. And really what happens is, is that when people have lost their jobs, they tend to go file with uh, the agencies. And we're seeing some cases. We have a brand new case uh, that we got yesterday that there's a video of the employee involved in some wrongdoing. I'll just leave it as that, all right? Mm -hmm. He happens to be a male involved with, on video, with a female friend of his during working hours Really, something that's inappropriate. Somebody walked in on them, and it, it, you know, there's no doubt the person should have been terminated. We get a lawyer, like an actual complaint, saying, "Oh, well, the employee really was retaliated against because he asked for a, a, a salary wage increase. He didn't get it, and he's the only person of a particular national origin. So now we have to defend a case that really doesn't have merit." but it's going to cost the employer money to do that. It's not like England where loser pays. So this is just the cost of doing business, but the employer does have, he has a video actually, the employer has documentation uh, to deal with it. So you know, it's not necessarily fair, and sometimes it's legalized blackmail, and mm-hmm. sometimes employees say, hey, maybe I can get some money. It costs more to go hire a lawyer or to deal with the whole court system, and maybe that's what I'll do, and that's... That's the the life that we see all the time. Yeah, that really is un- that really is unfair. Welcome to my life, Larry. You know, so yes, I have a lot of, uh, I, I you know, and I use the word it's legalized blackmail. And there are also some employers that we get where, I mean, you know, some of our stories are unbelievable that where they have in fact been guilty of certain discrimination, and we say, you know, once we get that, we tell them what in the world were they thinking nicely, and try mm-hmm. to put them in compliance and explain to them what they should do to make sure they don't go through the same uh, rigmarole in the future. Yeah. It is, not only going to sidetrack, but it is interesting because I know like in real estate law, sometimes the loser and has to pay, I guess contract law, the loser pays right. the legal expenses. So uh, so it is, it is interesting in different types of the law, but let's not kind of get sidetracked <laughs> with that. So, so if an employee, are they entitled to unemployment insurance if they are either laid off or terminated? 
Well, great, another great question. Is that for layoffs slash furloughs, the answer is yes. They're laid off for a lack of work. There's some exceptions. Somebody has two jobs and they're only laid off from one. They may not be entitled to that. The distinction during the uh, PUA, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, with $600, which is now $300 with a different uh, terminology So beyond that. But ordinarily, someone, uh, the, the rule of thumb, they're laid off uh, or they're furloughed. They are entitled to it. The, you know, under the unemployment insurance law, Section 593, if someone is guilty of misconduct and are then terminated, they, in fact, are ineligible for unemployment insurance. However, what I tell the employer is that if they fight their unemployment insurance of, of an employee, this is just historical, it's, doesn't, you know, it's not automatic, but I'm just saying that uh, the likelihood of then somebody filing a discrimination claim against them uh, skyrockets geometrically because people, when they're backed into a corner, oh my gosh, I'm not getting my unemployment insurance. Hmm, I've gotten, I don't need to hire a lawyer. I'm going to run to the agency and now maybe I'll get some money from the employer. So many times employers, whether, you know, when their people are discharged, it has to be misconduct. If somebody is performing improperly, that's something else. But going to my example of 30 absences and 30 latenesses and 30 leaving earlies, Certainly, that's misconduct, and that would be, uh, you know, people would be ineligible should the employer decide to fight that unemployment insurance uh, benefit request by the uh, uh, by the employee. Hmm. So, if an employee is laid uh, or people off, yes, let's just say, let's just say a restaurant with ten yes. t- uh, ten servers. How yes. do they know which ones to recall or, or after a layoff if they only okay. going to recall a few of them? All right. Well, I think that most of the time they have to have the essential functions to perform their job. So my example that I give all the time, I, represent, I just talked about car dealers. I represent, I represent a ton of restaurants in almost in every industry you think of. But let's, I think this is pretty easy to, to, you know, to give you an example. And, uh, so number one, let's assume you have someone who's a, a porter utility person in a service department at a car dealership. Okay, and that person's been there 15 years. He or she sweeps up. They go and move the cars from one location to the other for the for the mechanics, technicians, and then you have an aid mechanic, aid technician who's been there a year. What you know? It's not like well, somebody's there 15 years, somebody's there a year. No, the person who's the poor utility person doesn't have the skill and ability to perform the aid technician's job to do that. So that has to be involved. So in your example, if someone had the same thing, listen, if someone had 10 servers and you only needed four back for now, I would do it strictly by length of service by seniority because, again, you want to show any agency, if somebody wants to make a claim that I'm doing, having, here's the terminology, a legitimate business reason for doing that. I took my most senior, four most senior people, and that's what I did. So that's how I would, you know, again, uh, however, let's assume for argument's sake that one of those people couldn't perform, the, you know, three of the four people also were doing the jobs and could handle a cash register and the fourth person couldn't do that. So you might go to number five because that person has the skill and ability to, to not only wait on tables, to, but be at the cash register. I'm just making up an example on something like that. So could it be a that, little again, dangerous? that's the safe thing. That's could all. it be a little dangerous if all four or all five of them are of the same sex so you're bringing back or basically if it if you just do it based upon how long they yeah. work yeah you do you say to them hey this is my criteria i don't care if they're men women transgender what they are who they are 
whatever, however they view themselves. This person is here 10, this person is here 9, 8, and 7. Those are the first four people I'm bringing back and, uh, to do that. But where people get in trouble is, I'm bringing 10, 9, and 8 back. Oh, man, that seven-year person, I can't, couldn't wait. When, I was so happy when I laid that person off or furloughed that person. I'm never bringing them back. Then they're calling somebody like me or you know, me or someone like me to go to uh, defend them when they haven't done the right thing. Clients that use us right will call us ahead of time and say, hey, I've got this following situation. You know, who, who, you know what do you think, Glenn? I give them the Glenn Franklin good housekeeping seal of approval after we go through it. And certainly you can save people a ton of money by avoiding the litigation. Hmm. It must be challenging for employers because if they really think numbers four or five are, are better employees than number six or seven, their hands are kind of tied, correct? Well, their hands could be tied, yes. I mean, so if they don't think employees, you know, 10, 9, 8, and 7 are so great, then the objective is, you know, that's what people do. They get complacent and say, well, they, nobody, nobody expected a pandemic. Nobody expected all of these things. But they're stuck with that, you know, unless they can show, again, I gave that other example with the car salespeople, you have some objective proof. But otherwise, oh, she smiles more, he smiles more, he's more friendly, then you get yourself in more difficult uh, circumstances and that, you know, people have to make a, you know, determination. It's always business first and labor and employment second. Mm -hmm. hmm. So what can an employer do to protect themselves? Is there any type of insurance that they can purchase? Uh, yeah, there is, but I'm going to say that with an asterisk, everything uh, during the pandemic has an asterisk, but it's an as asterisk. So there is something called, a lot of my clients have it, we recommend it, called them EPLI, Employment Practices Liability Insurance property and casualty brokers do that but there's there's a couple of issues with it number one what when they buy it nobody says it the broker doesn't say it whatever what it doesn't cover is punitive damages that's where the real dollars could be so when we deal with the insurance companies and we deal with most insurance companies not all you know we recommend to our clients that they should be able to choose you know, buy a policy where they could choose their own attorney it's a little self-serving but although we deal with the insurance companies, our client is our client. They don't want to be, they get an insurance uh, attorney from the insurance company, that attorney is representing the insurance company. They don't care if there's punitive damages or not because the insurance company is not paying for it. So what do they care? Whereas we care because we want to put the people in a, in a the greatest spot. 30-second story, you know me, I don't tell anything 30 seconds, Larry, sorry. <laughs> but a quick story that, that you know, we, we had a, a client where, guy had hired a marketing director uh, and I think six weeks later she came in she told him he, that she was pregnant he brought three vice presidents in and in front of everybody all males she's a woman he starts screaming you blankety blank you know you're gonna get pregnant I'm gonna going crazy and fires her she's crying this is before we were involved and she gets fired and then that she gets a, a claim and we meet with him and say and, and, and he says thanks for meeting Glenn but I have insurance, and I go, no, you don't. What do you mean, no, I don't? What you did was so outrageous, so egregious, that it's now a punitive damage com complaint. So he turns the shade of uh, f uh, photocopy paper, turns, you know, white, and, and, you know, and 
and had to wind up uh, resolving the case, settling it. But you have to treat people the way we'd want to be treated, which is what we talked about before. So the insurance is a good thing to have if it's done right, if people get the right attorney to represent them, if they know to be smart enough before they not just automatically fire people willy-nilly, they still have to treat it whether they have insurance or not. They have to use a documentation. They have to be consistent. But there is a product to do that, uh, which is... Uh, really been helpful to a lot of employers, especially, but it's a double-edged sword because a lot of plaintiff's attorneys say, hey, insurance companies go and say, gee, it costs less to go and settle this case than it does to go and, you know, spend money, big money on a trial. So we'll throw some, even cases that really don't have merit a lot of times. That's So the employer gets mad. They don't, they're not spending the money because they've used up the deductible, Larry, but they're still aggravated that mm. the person who, d who doesn't deserve 12 cents winds up with uh, with some money and sometimes significant money based upon what the insurance company determines. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. So we can talk about that for, for a lot longer, but let's let's switch gears and talk about another topic while we have some more time. So uh, what is the new the new New York State sick leave law and, and, ha and who does it affect? Okay, well, that's important and let's just make sure. So today is... Uh, September 22nd, starting September 30th, every single employer in New York State, New York City already has this law. It's now mirrored after the New York City law. So every employer who has this, I mean, there are exceptions if you have less than four employees, but, but ordinarily, generically, that employers have to now pay up to five days paid sick leave that has to be designated as such in a calendar year. The people earn it, the employees earn it, for one hour for every 30 hours of work that they do, up to a maximum of five paid sick leave days. I'm not a fan of PTO days because then it's all thrown together. I like it designated. I don't like, well, I can, I'm giving three sick and two personal days, so is that five? No, it should be designated with that. You, you know, you can frame it such a way where it may not cost an employer any additional money if, if they put it in certain ways, but that, that's something that has to be done. And if they don't have it, uh, it's interesting that the New York Consumer Affairs Office is the one that's enforcing that. Unfortunately, we probably are, you know, uh, we have one of, the, uh, uh, one of the cases that was settled probably the highest amount. I'm hoping to lose that distinction. It wasn't us, but the highest amount that uh, as far as a penalty came up with a large employer uh, in New York City that uh, didn't have it. But the state now is requiring it. One last thing on it, it doesn't have to be paid out at the end of the year. So if it's unused, people take three days. They got two additional days. They can they can take it in the following year. They don't. The employer doesn't say now I have to pay seven. No, it's still a maximum of five days. But because they're carrying it over, as an example, somebody gets sick January fifteenth. They don't have to again wait for the one hour for every thirty hours that they work. They can use that right away. And they've extended that to immediate family. It's for certain aspects of uh, someone is uh, has to go to, to school for their child, someone who has to go to court, someone who's been a victim of domestic violence, someone else in the family. So it's been pretty extensive and expanded as to what sick leave. It used to be, hey, if you're not, if it's you that's sick, we're sorry. If your child is sick. An employer could take the position, we're not paying for that. It's different going forward starting September 30th, which actually is for uh, January 1st. So it really is the calendar year 2021. Uh, we've sent out uh, 
uh, really a, uh, you know, an email blast to our employers and contacts, uh, you know, uh, to go just advise them of that because not having that, there's no requirement, unfortunately. The state puts it out, but they don't go and notify all the employers, especially small employers who always come to us and said, how come they didn't tell me? And it is unfortunate, but they're not required to do that. And a lot of times they come after the bones in their throat. So speaking of small em employers like myself, so this is actually kind of new to me here too. So just so I'm, okay. just so I'm clear, so if, if your policy is if you do 21 PTO days in, in a year, yes. You sh you can't include the state the, the New York State sick days in those twenty one yes, days. You, can, you have to no, you can. I'm glad. Great question. So what I would do is I change. You still like the the, the days? I'd say you have a tw a total of twenty one days. Five of them will be designated as sick days. You still have the same twenty one, but we're designated five of them as sick days. You can use them for the following reasons. Boom. This way you don't have an issue. I did. The employee says I didn't know. I, I used up all my vacation and now I'm sick. And now, I mean, it's clear. It's two sentences, three sentences. Goes to your employees and you're covered. So you're not but, going. But you still oh, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, there. You still recommend doing five sick days separately and your PTO days separately. Why? Only because this way, if anybody makes a complaint that they said, I didn't know I had the sick days, I took my 21 days all on vacation, and now the following thing happens and my employer's not paying me, et cetera, et cetera, we can, we can show the Department of Consumer Affairs, we can show the Department of Labor or any court to say, here it is in black and white, it's three sentences, we've educated our employees, this is the policy, we're abiding by the law, boom. It's not costing you a penny extra, except for maybe three sentences, and you're not saying, I'm not saying, oh my gosh, now Glenn, you're saying I gotta give 26 days? No, 21 days, so you, know, you just change it in that way, just designate it, put a different designation back. If you have $4 to spend, whether it's 2 plus 2 equals 4 or 3 plus 1 equals 4, at the end of the day, it's still 4. So I'm telling you, the end of the day for you is still 21, just designated a little bit differently to protect yourself in case anyone makes a claim later on. Right. So if they've used all their PTO days and then they become sick, what do you do? You just don't pay them for that particular? Well, that would be the situation. Same thing. So let's go to my example for you. Change it from 16 days you know, 16 days PTO and five days sick. Once they're beyond their five sick days, you don't have to pay them for day number six. If you want to go and say, hey, they can, because it's PTO, they can use it for anything else beyond that, that's fine. But all mm -hmm. I'm saying is they just have to understand that the PTO days can be used for sick days, that absolutely five of those PTO days are designated as sick days. Again, so there's no, it's not a big deal other than protection against anybody making a claim. Listen, it might be, you know, unfortunately, people can do all kinds of things. And you may have the greatest employees now, but this can relate to an employee who you've never hired yet, and that's always my uh, recommendation. I don't like to look yeah. to over-lawyer it, but if it doesn't cost you anything, and it's really just, you know, a couple of sentences to protect yourself, makes perfect sense to me. Great. No, those are great points, and everyone should be aware of them. So uh, one last question. What issues are most likely to result in a state or a federal court case these days? Um, yeah, I think based upon, I think we touched upon it a little bit, but based upon the number of people that have lost their jobs, really you're talking about discrimination cases. When restaurants, who I represent, I know you do as well, when, when restaurants 
uh, were rolling. A lot of them were not paying overtime properly, or they had people who were they designated as exempt from overtime and not doing that. And there was a lot of uh, overtime wage and hour cases. We're finding more of the discrimination cases coming to the forefront uh, of all these different things because people have been laid off. And they're hoping the employer has uh, insurance for this because the insurance companies many times take the you know, the easier route out, which might be, let's just give, throw some dollars at them. It's cheaper to do it that way. So we're seeing a, uh, an increase, pardon me, an increase of a uh, of number of cases based upon when the economy is not good and people have lost their jobs or on layoff. Or, you know, we even have some cases where people have had their salaries or hourly rates reduced. People are making discrimination claims. But it's not a matter of, hey, I was harassed. Hey, it's unfair. The question has to rise to the level of being unlawful based upon age, race, sex, national origin, religion, uh, sexual orientation, uh, disability, and on and on and on. Just because somebody, hey, he or she didn't like me, that's not covered under that. New York and federally employment, it will matters, but people can make claims for discrimination, uh, and it's not hard to file. Mm, so great. hopefully that was uh, uh, at least a synopsis for any of your Listeners that whether they're employers or employees, it's employees are should not be getting uh, being discriminated against. They've given you, them some information as well that there are agencies for uh, for them to uh, to deal with as as well. And I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, share some of this uh, with you, Larry, and you're you're a, you know super person. So I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to uh, to be on your podcast. Great. Now, this is all great information. And thank you, Glenn, for joining us today. And if any of you would like to reach out to Glenn, for uh, you can find him at franklingringer.com or call his office at 516-228-3131. Thanks, Glenn, so much. Thanks so much. And uh, stay safe, everybody. Thank you again, Larry. Be well. Glenn and Larry, this was fantastic. Larry, I've said it before, you find the best guests, really do. <laughs> and uh, wow, I mean, Glenn, I'm so glad you're out there. You know, you're, you're well, out there you. and uh, you, wealth of information. I hope that anybody listening to this uh, gives you a call uh, to, to get to know you more. So thank you so much for being on the show, like Larry said. Eric, thank you. I appreciate it, Eric. And thank you, Larry. It's fun. Uh, you know, me, uh, it's showtime. I give you a lot of credit, Larry, to be able to, you know, I was looking at the clock going, I, you know, I don't want to go on too long. So hopefully I wasn't too bad. But uh, you know me, I never could win the 25 words or less contest. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, this all is right. all important stuff, so this is great. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And so the last thank you, of course, goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Larry comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening today. For everyone at Heller Wealth Management, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.